0: Come and share, and it's, uh, it's going to be uh, good to look at God's Word uh, together uh, this morning. Well, this particular uh, talk I actually prepared before we returned here to Australia. And in God's providence, uh, I was actually due to speak here on around about uh, the mid uh, of July. And uh, as Paul and I talked, uh, we thought that probably wasn't necessarily the best time. And then uh, we were able just to sit here as plebs in the seats. And uh, I was really encouraged by Paul's message, uh, particularly around the idea of uh, leadership and eldership. And if you haven't listened to that particular talk or you weren't here on that day, I really encourage you to get hold of it. It was very challenging and uh, certainly dovetails into what I'm speaking uh, about this morning. Some of you may have heard of a group in America by the name of Barna Research Uh, They conducted a survey of young adults between the ages of 18 and 35 in 25 different countries uh, around the world, Tanzania and Australia being two of them. And the results were mind-blowing. 82% of people under the age of 35 said that they believe that there are not enough good leaders in their countries. And those that are leading abuse their power. Sure, that's in America, and the survey was done around the world, but hey, it gets a little bit closer to home because according to a survey done by the ABC in 2019, it says this, Australians don't trust religious leaders. Half of those that they surveyed, one in every three people overall, say they don't trust religious leaders at all. In fact, even in the church. Only 58% of Protestants like you and I trust their leadership. The other 47% are Catholics. Divide that into age demographics and it's even worse. The younger generation just don't. If you want to trust someone, evidently you have to go and trust a doctor or a nurse because they get 97%. Or a scientist, 93 But whatever you do, do not trust leaders. And don't even trust church leaders. And if you do, go and stand over there with the other 30% while everybody has a little bit of a laugh at you. That is exceedingly sad. And can I tell you this morning that the statistics would even be worse if it was done in Africa. Leaders in Africa in particular abuse and feed on the sheep in general. And all we have to do even to look back here in our own country over the last few years in the Christian sphere, there have been amazing Bible teachers, great speakers, great pastors, but they've ended up falling from grace because of the abuse, the bullying, the lack of care of the flock, the sexual abuse, the financial scams, the list goes on and on. But the reality is that this problem has been around for centuries Lord Acton in 1887 wrote a letter to one of the bishops in the Church of England and he penned these very famous words. I'm sure some of you have heard previously this morning. These words are this, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And he rightly observed that power actually does have a tendency to corrupt, whether that be in the highest offices in the land, even in our own homes, even in our own community groups. Power can be abused by the trader, by the official, by the politician or anybody else in power who uses that to leverage for their own advantage. I don't know about you, but I remember back in school, uh, we would often have uh, those uh, lovely groups where you used to get together and do some sort of group assignment. We probably all had them at some point. I never really liked them. There was always somebody in that group, wasn't there, that was always domineering over everybody else, was often the most argumentative. But maybe for you, it's not at school. Maybe it is the family member who manipulates or uses violence to get what they want from the rest of the family. And this has really been driven home, hasn't it? been really driven home here in Australia because over the last decade or so, we've had royal commissions exposing widespread abuse. Abuse by, of power by institutions like churches, schools, governments, universities, community groups and banks and the list goes on and on. And for many of us here today, it's hardly any surprise. I believe the statistics of us in this room this morning, 70% of us have been abused in one form or another, whether that's physical, spiritual or emotional. We've personally experienced the abuse of power. We can name it because we know it philosophically and we are intellectually attuned to it. We see people everywhere feathering their own nests domineering over others and sadly we can also see it and hear it in churches and sometimes we as Christians do it in the most extreme ways. And so the question that I want us to think about and consider this morning is can you actually use power without dominating over somebody else? It's an important question for us to ask and I guess as I as a missionary I also have to ask the question. Can, can the gospel go to other cultures, to other parts of the world? And can the gospel go without domineering over others? Because sadly, in mission history, there has been so many stories and testimonies where their missionaries came and they in fact abused the people that they were actually meant to be serving. Because the reality is, even in our 21st century, we often think that power is always violent, don't we? We always think it's domineering. We always think that it's abusive. But at the heart of the Christian account, the true account of reality, it is, in fact, the account of power being used in the service of others. And so if you've got your Bibles this morning, and I hope you do, we're going to walk through uh, John 18. And uh, we had some of that read to us uh, this morning. And really at the heart of it, there is a clash about what power really looks like. And so if you've got your Bibles, you've got your apps, whatever, let's uh, walk through it uh, this morning starting here at verse 1. After Jesus had spoken these words, what were those words? Well, he had just been in prayer to his father. Uh, He went out with his disciples across the Kidroin Valley. Uh, That is just east of Jerusalem. And it is to a place where there was a garden where he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. Verse 3. So Judas brought a detachment of soldiers together with the chief priests and the Pharisees and they came there with their lanterns and torches and weapons. Now just stop there for a moment. Uh, Here we have Jesus the light of the world, and there is a picture that is taking place. He is going out into darkness, yes, physically, but he's also going out into darkness spiritually. But what I want you to notice here is that there is a word that is used, and it's very easy for us just to read over and not think too much about. It's that word detachment, that there was a detachment of soldiers. Uh, We actually get the idea that the word sort of connected to this is the word battalion. It actually means a fixed number of people. And I don't know about you, but I've always wondered, I wonder how many people actually came to arrest Jesus. We kind of have this mental picture, well I did anyway, that there was just a couple of scraggly elderly high priests, maybe a soldier or two, some old retired guys, very weak, very wrinkly. But no, that's not how it was. The word detachment here, in theory, literally means a thousand people. Probably more like six to seven hundred of them, according to the historians. So you've got to get this picture in your mind. here where we have uh, these rattling swords, these flickering lanterns as they are marching footstep after footstep. And they're en masse. Now, I don't know about you, but that would be an intimidating experience, seeing 600 or so soldiers coming there towards you with their their swords and all their armoury. I don't know about you, but I think I would be pooping my pants at this particular point. What is stunning, of course, is Jesus is completely and utterly in control. Look here at verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom are you looking for? Now, there's a lot going on in this particular passage, and I don't want you to miss the connections. But if Jesus knew what was about to happen to him, why in the world would he ask that question? Why ask? Did he not know? Why ask, Whom are you looking for? Jesus is forcing these guys to actually acknowledge what they are doing. And he does this several times in this chapter. In other words, Jesus is constantly in this chapter forcing the question, as he is forcing the question for us, is where do you stand? Are you for me or are you against me? What side of the line are you actually going to stand on? And then in verse 5, Jesus replies, I am he. Or perhaps even better in the original language, there's no he there, it is just I am. And if you read John's Gospel, you will know that throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus repeatedly says, I am. And it is a scandal within the context of uh, this particular time within the culture to actually say those words was scandalous. Now, let me kind of put it into a little bit of a picture for you, or try to. At high school, Uh, many, many years ago, uh, and then also into my uh, young adult period and even up into my early 20s, uh, I had a nickname. Uh, My surname is Willis Jones. It is a mouthful to say. Thank you very much, my parents and all the others all the way back. And so uh, my friends would often give me a nickname of Willie J. Anyone said Willie J? I was the only one that responded. Who would want a name called Willie J? But anyway, you've got your own name, correct? Even if someone today said Willie J, I would probably turn around and have a look to see who, who was saying it. But if anybody else used that name, they would be stealing my considerable glory. It's my name. It's not your name. It's mine. You use your own name, whatever your own name is. Why? Because if you, use, if you use my name, you are actually claiming my status. My status is not great. But anyway, my status is, is great. I'm a husband to Talitha and I'm a father to three boys, Caden, Jacob, and Ethan. That was said nice and slowly for Paul so we can remember it next time. Ching, ching. Here Jesus takes to his very own lips the name of God. Here I am. Yahweh, the great I am. And when Jesus said to them, I am, they step back and they fall on the ground, presumably all six to seven hundred of them. You wonder who is in control? It's Pretty clear, isn't it? The guy says his name and you get knocked on your backside. Who are you looking for? We're looking for Jesus. I am. Boom, bang, you're on your backside looking up at the stars. That would have been an amazing sight. Jesus' voice is so powerful, he could awaken dead men out of the graves. He speaks and people are healed. His name is so powerful, it knocks these army this army on its backside to the ground. Which is a contrast here to what Judas, right? Where's Judas? It's clear. Judas has gone over to the dark side. He's not on the same team anymore. Uh, and the text records he stands with who? The enemy. Which side are you on? And Peter, one of my favourite guys, because he is so much like me, a bit of a fruit bat, he is kind of late to the party. Because remember, where's he been? He's been off having a bit of a power nap. It's probably a little bit like me or you when you wake up from one of those power nap naps. You are feeling very groggy. You aren't feeling very happy. And he comes in swinging, like probably like me, not always thinking before acting. And by the way, I don't think he was actually aiming for the ear. <laughs> I, I think he was trying to turn that guy's head into a bowling ball, and he missed. I don't think he's Zorro or one of the superheroes. I actually think he'd probably had too much wine to drink and he misses. And if you compare this particular account to what actually went on in Luke's account and what's recorded for us, Luke adds that Jesus then reaches down, picks up the guy's ear and reattaches it. Imagine it. You've just had your ear hacked off by this particular guy. One minute your ear is ringing, your head is throbbing, there is blood pouring out and you are staring at your ear on the ground. It's not a very nice picture, is it? The next minute, Jesus has reattached it and the pain is gone. Now, I don't know about you, but at this particular point, the alarm bell should be going off for these guys, the original, but it also should be going off for us. Why? Because all throughout their history, the Jews had known God as who the great I am. Remember, what is the setting here? Where are they? They're in the garden. What time is it? That night. If you live in the Middle East, when is it the most cool? At night. In the cool of the day. And Where else was there a confrontation between God and man in a garden? In the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden. And what happens in the Garden of Eden? God went looking for a man and a woman that he had created and there was no answer. The man and the woman had gone off and hid. Something had happened. Their friendship had suddenly soured. Previously, there was a healthy relationship this way and a healthy relationship this way and that has now been soured. Love which had been so visibly present. Their love for God and for each other, ever so beautiful, ever so fragile, had now been trampled upon. Love had been betrayed in a quest for two things, knowledge and power. Now if you fast forward the button all the way back now to John 18, here we have it again in the garden. Only this time the roles have been reversed. What do you have? You have sinful man, you have violent man with weapons. They come to the garden in the cool of the day, in the darkness, and they are looking for someone. And who is that someone? We are told by John, they were looking for I am, Yahweh. Turns out that they were actually looking for God. And I think there is no doubt what Jesus wants us to hear here, no pun intended, but in this moment, the one standing before you in the garden as there is a a glimpse of a flickering torchlight around the place, there is, I am, God in the flesh. And so no wonder that Judas and his disciples, uh, not his disciples, his uh, soldiers step backwards and they fall on the ground. They're stumbling. Now whether that is voluntary or involuntary, it doesn't matter. They've come face to face with God. But at this particular point, I want you to see that there is a great power shift taking place. This is what true power actually looks like because unlike Adam in the garden, Jesus doesn't hide. He doesn't try and shift the blame, does he? He doesn't make up a false narrative to try and get his way out of it. He doesn't try and fight his way out either. He doesn't do any of that. Get the picture in your brain. There are these men who have evil in their hearts. They have treachery and murderous intent and they cannot escape the reality of who is actually standing in front of them. And this is where we begin to see the very sharp contrast in power because they have come with swords and clubs and they treat Jesus just like any other of those false prophets or abusive leaders and even Peter here is expecting that Jesus would fight. But Judas and even Peter don't understand what Jesus is doing. Jesus is bringing in a revolution. And in our world <laughs> we often think revolution brings a new set of people into power right but often a revolution is not a true revolution a true reflection of a revolution because it is still based on the same old principles you might have new people in the chairs but it's just based on the same old same old of money power sex politics and control but notice here that Jesus is not interested in putting into a new, uh, putting into place a new set of people. He's not interested in shuffling the chairs around. He's not interested in keeping things the way they are. He is bringing about a new kind of administration. He is turning everything upside down. One that uses power in a totally different way. Now we are so blessed, aren't we? Because we have the Bible in a format and a language that we can understand and we can fast forward to after the resurrection. And where does Jesus meet Peter? He meets Peter, doesn't he, at a a bit of a beach picnic. And Peter feels like an extreme failure. Now notice what Jesus actually does. He does not come up to Peter and put his arm around him and go, you know the other night, you know where you chopped that guy's ear off? Look, don't worry about it. Oh, you know how you kind of, um, well, you lied a couple of times, buddy, and you betrayed me. Oh, no, no, don't worry about that. That's okay. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus forces Peter to remember and revisit his denial and his sin, and Peter is forced to, re- to relive once again that spiritual pride that he had, the paralysis, the cowardness, the shame, and the remorse of that particular night. And Jesus asks the most penetrating question of all, doesn't he? Do you love me? Do you love me? Jesus, I think this is fascinating because it's so different to how I would have responded. Uh, Jesus doesn't go for anything intellectual, does he? He just goes straight For Peter's heart. Peter, do you love me? What is the state of your heart? There are no new doctrines that have been taught at this particular point. There are no practical steps. There are no questions. Hey, Peter, have you been in the Word this week? He just asks the simple question, do you love me? It is a vital question because Jesus is like a master surgeon. He is removing layer after layer after layer, and he is getting to what? The heart. Think about Jesus here on the beach. I call it the cabinet illustration. Because someone like Peter messes up, screws up, drops the ball. I'm like this, and I think you probably are as well. Well, that person is hopeless. Put him under H. Pull out the filing cabinet, file that person in. That person goes under D. He's dull. That person goes under F, he's forgetful. That person goes under A, he's annoying. That person goes under Q. They're always asking questions. And so if people let me down, I go, okay, I'll just put you under F for failure. It's our nature, right? But notice Jesus, that is not the way that Jesus does it. He finds his disciples. Here it is, Peter. In the midst of their failure, he finds them and he restores them, and he refreshes them. And this is what I find so mind-blowing and so challenging. I can't help but observe that here it is so clearly that Jesus' intention is what? That the church is actually to be built on people who are failures, but they admit it. Have you ever thought about that? that his church should be led, taught, and fed by failures, broken people, people that have messed up so much. But the question is what? Do you love me? Do you love me? Well, let's continue in our story. Let's just go down there to verse 14, if you've got your Bibles, because it then says that it was Saithus who had advised the Jews that it would be expectant that one man should die for the people. Uh, That is very much a prophecy that must be fulfilled, that one man should die for the people. Now, if you flip down now to verse 21, there is a conversation going on between the high priest and Jesus. In verse 21 it says, Why do you ask me? And those who have heard uh, heard me what I said to them, they know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if, I said, if what I said was, is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said was right, why do you strike me? In other words, Jesus here is then asking the question once again, what is your motivation? The restraint here must have been absolutely unbelievable. I was thinking that if I was Jesus, I would have said something along these lines. So is that how I am meant to answer you, the high priest? Come on, bud. Do you realize who you are speaking to? In fact, I am the high priest of all high priests. I'm actually the one that, who actually has access to God. In fact, I am God. And by the way, this whole priestly system was established to point to one person. And by the way, Mr. Priesty Guy, that's me. And just to top it off, in a few hours' time, in fact, this whole system is going to be totally and utterly obsolete. You, my friend, are going to be out of a job. So you be careful who you're talking to. And by the way, I wonder you, Mr. All Dressed in White, I wonder how you're going to feel when you see me coming down on the clouds of glory. If I were Jesus at this particular point, I would have also dropped in, and I am, at least a truly, truly, and knocked them all on their backsides once again, which is probably why God didn't pick me to play the role of Jesus. Here is the thing. Power is everywhere. Every single one of us in this room have power at some level. It's part of the human experience. But power is not the heart of reality. Power is not the most true thing in this world. Love is. God's love is. His ultimate love, seen in the work and the person of Jesus. It is his love that allows him to be taken away here from the garden, to be humiliated, to be dominated, to be beaten, to be abused and condemned. And this leads to Jesus' death on the cross And it wasn't an unexpected accident. He allowed himself the full force of all of our abuse of power. And what I find truly revolutionary here about Jesus is the way that in fact he uses his power. He withholds his power for the good of others. See, he was never more in control than when he wasn't in control because he entrusted himself to God the Father. He withheld his power for the good of others. A story is told. Uh, Many of you would have heard about Sir Edmund Hillary. Uh, He's the guy that climbed Mount Everest in uh, 1953, one of the most astonishing uh, human achievements in all of history. Edmund returned regularly to Nepal and uh, when he would return to Nepal, he would often stay at base camp and uh, he would often encourage the other climbers who were going trying to get up to the top of the world. And a story is told that on one of his returns to Nepal at this base camp, uh, he was noticed by some of the other climbers and they recognised who he was for his greatness of being the first person to climb. And they thought, oh, this would be a great photo opportunity. So they went and grabbed a, a pickaxe and they gave it to him and said, can we have a photo? And he said, yes, no problem. They are just about to take the photo and uh, Sir Edmund Hillary is standing there in the front row holding the pickaxe and there was just another tourist climber. And he notices and he doesn't recognise who Sir Edmund Hillary is and he says, oh, hang on, buddy, uh, you're holding the pickaxe incorrectly. And so he walks over to Sir Edmund Hillary and Sir Edmund Hillary is holding the pickaxe and this other guy just adjusts it. And Sir Edmund Hillary just allows him to do that. The photo goes on, they take the photo and then they disperse. No matter how great the other climber was, his greatness is turned into nothing. The great like Sir Edmund Hillary, withhold their power for the good of others. He could have so easily said, hey, buddy, do you recognize who I am? I made it to the top. You haven't. You think I don't know how to hold a pickaxe? The great withholding their power for the good of the others. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that incredibly challenging. Why? Because my natural inclination of my heart is to exalt in the triumph of my will over others. I want to do what is wrong just by default. I'm arrogant. I'm rude. I often don't care about other people's feelings. Quite simply, I'm a bit of a jerk. But here's the thing. I know I'm not alone. Because you are too. A Number of months ago, uh, I was in conversation uh, with my accountability partner And um, accountability partners are, oh man, they're really hard work because they ask really hard questions. And uh, he said to me, uh, he knew about a situation that I was going through and he said, Craig, just, and I want you guys to do the same thing this morning. He said, Craig, I just want you to think about one person that has really hurt you, that has abused you, that has done wrong by you. And said, I'm saying, hey, JT, there is more than just one. There is a very long list. He says, that's okay. Just, just feel that, let that weigh in on you. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm feeling those emotions. I'm feeling what is going on in my heart. And I, he just says, Craig, just let it soak in for a minute. I hope you're doing the same. He then says, Craig, this next bit is going to sting." He said, Craig, that is how much you love Jesus. Boom. Drop the mic. You see, he went on to say, Craig, the way that we love God is actually a reflection on how we love others. And it's true. Peter, do you love me? Now, I know that we can't do that perfectly, but do you see so often that we are so much like Peter I certainly am. We can easily say, Lord, Lord, you are the Christ, you are the king, you are the ruler, and then we fall flat on our face when the rubber of our theology hits the road. A guy by the name of uh, Thomas A. Kempis says this. Listen carefully. For what would it profit to know the whole Bible by heart and all the principles of all the philosophies if we live without grace and the love of God? Now look here at verse 25, we've now got Simon Peter who's standing there, he's warming himself. And so they say to him, you also are not one of the disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had actually cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it and at once the rooster crowed. In verse 8, that was read to us previously, Jesus says, let them go, which literally means forgive them in the original language. Jesus is saying, me for them. And in verse 11, there is this cup that he says that he has to drink. What is that cup? It is a picture of wrath. God's wrath towards us because of our sinful dark side that we all have. And I guess familiarity can breed immunity to many of us. But let's just remind ourselves as we close this morning, what went on for Jesus at the crucifixion. Let me read to you some of the stuff that took place. Crucifixion was suffering in every kind and form possible to man. The word excruciating is actually derived from the word crucifixion. It literally means from the cross. So a word was actually derived to explain the pain of the crucifixion. The way it would work would be this. A person would die a painfully slow and painful death by asphyxiation. That is, the person who has been crucified had a very difficult time breathing. They would be going in and out of consciousness. Some would last for hours on the cross, others for days on the cross. History records that some hung on the cross for nine days before dying, sweating under the hot sun of the day, and then going into shock because of the freezing temperatures at night. People would gather to throw stones to verbally abuse, to spit on the one that is actually being crucified. The one being crucified will lose control of all of their bodily functions. So blood, sweat, tears, feces would be dripping off their bodies. And in an attempt to get back at the crowd, those being crucified would try and spit and urinate on the crowd. Jesus did none of it. If Jesus wanted to, he could have brought down hail and lightning and consumed everything. But he withheld his power for the good of others. For your good. For my good. Friends, that is the raw nerve of Christianity, isn't it? The utterly unique thing. Nowhere else in history is it so clearly talked about and shown that God, the creator of the universe, he served you first, put you first. Shamed himself, humbled himself, put others before himself and he died on the cross for our salvation. He came into this world, our world, which is so scarred, isn't it, by power and abuse and corruption leaders who often don't even give a stuff about the people that they're meant to be actually serving. May I dare to say that that sadly often happens even in the church. And here Jesus was crushed and he was dominated by himself, dying a death that he did not deserve. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I close with this this morning, says these great words, nothing else can do it. When I see that I am in fact a sinner, that nothing but the Son of God on the cross can save me, I am humbled to the dust. Nothing but the cross can give us a spirit of humility. Can anyone be arrogant? Can anyone hold power and wield it over others when they stand beside the cross? Can we say today, Father, I want to stand as close as I possibly can to the cross because when I am there, it is harder for me to be arrogant and power-hungry when I'm there. Can we truly say today, I want to be a person that loves God and therefore, because of my love with him, I can love and serve others and I can withhold my power, whatever my power is, for the good of others. How about we just bow our heads and we reflect for a few minutes on God's word and what he has spoken to us about this morning. And then I'll ask uh, Paul to come and close.